Let me recap this again because it's so important. The history of Israel coming out of slavery, going through the wilderness, and traveling into the land flowing with milk and honey, Canaan, it, it really happened. It's real history. But the amazing thing about God is as all those events were unfolding and they're recorded for us in the scriptures, God was painting a far greater picture of realities that would take place centuries later through his son, Jesus Christ. And these are called types and shadows. They're pointing to a greater reality. When you see the shadow of a tree or a person standing in the sun, uh, the shadow isn't the person. It, it gives you an outline of that person. But if you're facing the light and you trace the shadow, it will always lead you to the real object that is casting that shadow. Likewise, as we face the light of God and look at these different shadows in the Old Testament, they point us to Jesus Christ. They point us to the reality. And we are now in part four of a seven-part series that we've entitled Out of Bondage into Abundance. And in the first four parts, we've been seeing that coming out of Egypt, three distinct experiences needed to happen for Israel to truly get free and to be prepared to make their journey into the promised land. It says in Deuteronomy 6.23, he brought them out to take them in. So we're still in that first part of the two parts of this whole story. You've got to come out so that you can go in, out of bondage, and then into the abundance that God has prepared. All right, the three experiences, one, they had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years, and it's only when they applied the blood of the Passover lamb to their doors that they were set free. And in one single night, two and a half million slaves, we estimate, were brought out of bondage after 400 years of being in slavery. All were set free in one single night through the blood of those Passover lambs. That's the first experience. We studied that in part two. That wasn't the end of the story, however. They came to the Red Sea. Pharaoh was still very much alive. He changed his mind, as he often did, and decided to chase after the Israelites and wanted to drag them back into slavery. But at the Red Sea, a second salvation experience took place. In the water, Pharaoh and his armies were drowned in the water. Israel passed through the Red Sea onto dry ground at the other side. Uh, Paul, writing to the Corinthian Christians, he calls this baptism. He says they were baptized in the Red Sea. And we saw that what happened in the Red Sea corresponds to the second vitally important experience that every Christian needs, which is water baptism by immersion. Okay, we get saved. We're saved by the blood of the Lamb. We've put our faith in Jesus Christ, and He's broken that yoke of slavery off of our lives. Hallelujah. We can sing about the blood for all eternity, but we're still not completely free. The Israelites were very happy the night they came out of Egypt, but three days later when they came to the Red Sea, they were all in a panic again, fearful, complaining, uh, wanting to go back to Egypt, mad at Moses. It was a big mess. They needed to see the salvation of God a second time. And you and I, after putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we're saved, we're delivered, praise God, we're set free, but not totally. 
There's something else that needs to happen in water baptism. Paul writes about it in Romans 6. The old man, the old nature of sin that will come back and try to drag us into our old life, that old self has to be crucified, dead, and buried in the waters of baptism. Then the Israelites traveled from the Red Sea, and 50 days counting from the night of Passover till the time God actually comes down and meets with them on Mount Sinai, this third and separate experience is so important. We're spending a lot of time here, as did the Israelites. They spent one full year, almost an entire year, camped at Mount Sinai. They didn't go anywhere. For one year, God kept them there because he had so many important things to accomplish. And if you've been with us, uh, we've already seen in part four that coming to Mount Sinai is a clear picture of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. The mountain was covered with fire. It was shaking. God came down and spoke face to face with them. And it was a glorious experience they had with God there at Mount Sinai. And, as I mentioned, it corresponds to a far greater glorious experience that happened on the day of Pentecost, and God wants it to happen in each and every one of our lives. It's called the baptism in the Holy Spirit with fire. Different from baptism in water. That's why in Hebrews 6, the writer of Hebrews talks about the foundations of the Christian life. You need foundations if you're going to build a house. You have to have all of these foundations in place. Well, what are they? Repentance from dead works, faith toward God, and then he mentions baptisms in the plural. Baptisms. He doesn't elaborate but it's very clear if you put a number of other scriptures together, there's baptism in water and there's baptism in the Holy Spirit. We're not going to look at all those verses again, but they're all in previous sections of the notes here. I want to recap seven important things that we're looking at that took place during that 12-month period that the Israelites were camped there at the base of Mount Sinai. And we've completed the first two of these. We're going to be moving on to the third one tonight. Uh, we saw, number one, at Mount Sinai, not in Egypt, neither at the Red Sea, but only when he brought them to Mount Sinai did God reveal his law and make a covenant with the people. This is where Moses went up on the mountain, received the two tablets of the law engraved on stone. Secondly, God brought the people to Mount Sinai and there revealed to them that he wanted to have an intimate relationship with them, very much like the marriage relationship. And we looked at this a lot last week. God became a husband to them at Mount Sinai. And through the baptism in the Holy Spirit, the Christian is espoused to Jesus Christ as his bride. And from then on, the Spirit and the bride are saying, Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. I want to be with you. You've called me into this covenant relationship. You've called me into this marriage relationship. I can't wait to consummate the marriage and be with you for all eternity. Very powerful. Very powerful. And we saw last time in Ephesians 5, Paul says this is a profound mystery. It's not going to be understood by carnal minds. You have to be baptized in the Holy Spirit to understand it. And the Holy Spirit begins to reveal and explain to you this marvelous mystery that 
God is calling people from every tribe, nation, race, color, all peoples of the earth to become one holy nation, one bride to marry Jesus Christ. He's not going to marry 34 or 134 different churches. He's going to marry one body, one church, one bride. That's why it's so important now God is trying to bring us all into that unity with the Holy Spirit where we lay aside all of our carnal, earthly, national differences and become one holy nation, a bride prepared for her husband. And, you know, let me just say something else about the Holy Spirit. This will, I think underscore how important the Holy Spirit is for us now in this age. Many would even describe this as the church age or the age of the Holy Spirit. Um, it's the apostolic age, but I like that, the age of the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus, when he was still here on earth, he said, look, I'm getting ready to go. I'm going to the cross I'm going to rise in three days. I'm going to ascend back to my Father. But don't worry. I'm going to send a paraclete. I'm going to send a counselor who will take up where I left off. He's going to come and dwell in you. He's called the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth. He will live in you and never leave you. He'll, he'll be dwelling in you. But here's what I want to point out to you. Because we are now living in the age of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said something which I'm sure you've read in the Gospels, and maybe you kind of scratched your head and wondered about it, and thought this is a rather puzzling thing Jesus is saying. But Jesus said, you can blaspheme the Father, and it can be forgiven. You can shake your fist at God Almighty, blaspheme Him, and then if you repent, it'll be forgiven you. You can even blaspheme Jesus Christ, call him every name in the book, curse him, blaspheme him. If you repent, God will forgive you for blaspheming Jesus. But if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, you'll never be pardoned. You know, that's strange, because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. But they are different persons of the Godhead. And because Jesus is now with the Father, and the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, He is center stage now. And the Holy Spirit is so important, Jesus said, don't blaspheme Him. And we must be careful not to grieve the Spirit, not to harden our hearts against the Spirit, not to quench the Spirit now, because the Holy Spirit is doing very important works in our lives. Now, let's move on to some new territory tonight. The third point that I mentioned here, and let me finish uh, going through this whole list. The third thing that God does at Mount Sinai he reveals to Israel that he wants a temple. He's seeking for a temple, a place where he can dwell with his people. That's what we're going to study tonight. The fourth thing that happens at Mount Sinai, God revealed his glory to his people. Now, they had seen some of his power in Egypt. They had seen some of his power and glory in the Red Sea, but now he's going to unveil his glory before the people. Fifthly, at Mount Sinai, God takes two and a half million slaves who have been in bondage for 400 years, and he organizes them and unites them into one body and places them in ranks, gives them a, a distinct marching order, because when they leave Mount Sinai, they're not leaving as a bunch of slaves. They're leaving as an organized army 
that moves as one unit. Sixthly, at Mount Sinai, God established a kingdom of priests. He establishes a holy priesthood. And number seven, we'll look at these later, God prepares the people to leave Mount Sinai and to begin their march through the wilderness into Canaan to possess the promised land. He took them out to take them in. But now, let's look at this third very important experience that takes place at Mount Sinai. And if you are following in the notes, this brings us to page 42, uh, Roman numeral 3. God sought for a temple where he could dwell. It's at Mount Sinai that God reveals through Moses to all of the people that he wants a dwelling place. He wants a temple where he can dwell in the midst of his people. And in Exodus 25, and chapter after chapter after chapter after that, God begins to speak to them about this temple. And we'll pick it up in Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9. God is speaking to them through Moses. He says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And it goes on and on and on. If you add them all up, there's about 50 chapters in all in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, devoted to this tabernacle. It was very important. And actually, that's another whole study to look at the tabernacle. It's a, it's a type and a shadow of many, many things, of our whole salvation, of Christ, of heaven, and uh, that's, that's an amazing study, but we can't detour too far tonight. I want to highlight a word here, sanctuary. He doesn't say, let them put up a hut, let them build some kind of a place where I can live. No, let them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. God has already been revealing to them that he is holy. We saw this last time. Marriage is a holy covenant. It's a holy, intimate relationship. And God had them wash themselves, even abstain from sexual relations, and clean their clothes. They had to go through three days of preparation before they could even meet with God. God was showing them, I'm holy, holy, holy. If you want to come near me, you must be holy. If you want me to dwell near you, I need a holy place. That's what sanctuary means. comes from the root word for sanctified or sanctify. It's a holy place. I will dwell only in a holy place. Let them make a holy place for me, and I will dwell there. And from Exodus 25, 10 onwards, it starts to list all sorts of materials that the Israelites needed to bring to build this tabernacle. The construction of the tabernacle, uh, God would reveal to them, he wanted it to be a joint effort. Everyone was going to play a part. Everyone had to consecrate, offer something. Everyone had to be involved in the construction of this tabernacle. And there's a word we're going to see here, and this 
tells us something very important about God. Everyone who was to be a part of this effort, they had to come willingly. I'll let that sink in. Everyone who was to come, everyone who was to be involved, everyone who was to donate any materials or any efforts toward the construction of this tabernacle, God didn't want people coming in there because Moses was twisting their arm or manipulating them or threatening them or pushing them around. God is a God who wants people to willingly serve him and love him. Everyone that came, they came willingly. Some offering their time, some offering materials, some offering their strength, their abilities, some uh, offering very precious things, silver, gold, precious gems, uh, a whole list of materials we'll read in a moment they were to bring. And you might be wondering, where does God expect these poor slaves, they've been in slavery, remember, for 400 years, where does God expect poor slaves to come up with gold and silver out in the middle of the desert? Well, if you recall, we talked about this in the Passover. Way back in Exodus 12, the Israelites, the night that they were leaving Egypt, it says that they spoiled the Egyptians. The Egyptians gave them gold, silver, expensive garments. They gave them all kinds of gifts as they were leaving that night. The Bible doesn't say it, but I've often looked at it as all their back pay for the 400 years they were in slavery. Let me tell you something. God is a just God. Nothing escapes his notice. And sometimes we think we're getting a raw deal. We've been cheated or gypped or we've not really been paid enough for our services. Let me tell you something. God always evens the score. And the Egyptians may have thought they were getting away with it for 400 years when they were enslaving these people, but take a second look at what happened at the Red Sea. Take a second look at all the plagues that fell on that place in Exodus. God knows how to bring judgment. And the interesting point here is Israel came out of Egypt extremely wealthy. Oh yeah, I'm talking millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of silver, gold, and precious items that they spoiled from the Egyptians. So when God says, bring your gold, bring your silver, he knew they had silver and gold because he gave it to them. It was their back pay. In Exodus 35, something amazing happens in this story, and I want to read this. Uh, hopefully it will stir you up. Exodus 35, from verse 4 to 10. Moses said to the whole Israelite community, This is what the Lord has commanded. From what you have, take an offering for the Lord. And here comes this word again. Everyone who is willing. You know, God loves the willing, cheerful giver. He, he doesn't want people doing things under compulsion or being threatened or manipulated. He wants us to come willingly from our own heart. Those are the offerings that bless him. So, from what you have, take an offering for the Lord. Everyone who is willing is to bring to the Lord an offering of gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, 
ram skins dyed red, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. All who are skilled among you are to come and make everything the Lord has commanded. That's quite a list of items, and obviously all of these items were given to them by the Egyptians on the night that they left Egypt. Gold, silver, fine linen, spices, expensive stones, onyx stones, other gemstones that we'll read more about later on. They were wealthy. And God now says, if you're willing, bring me an offering. And these offerings were specifically for the building of this tabernacle, for the sanctuary. God didn't need their money, but he wanted them to learn an important principle. Through willingly offering things to God, we build a dwelling place for him, a place where his presence feels comfortable. Exodus 36. Uh, before we go there, let me point out one more thing from the passage we just read. There were two types of offerings mentioned here. Everyone who is willing bring gold, silver, bronze, or one of those items. But here's the second offering. All who are skilled among you are to come and make everything the Lord has commanded. So some brought items, some brought themselves. They brought their skills. You see, they were going to need uh, metal workers, carpenters, all kinds of craftsmen to take these materials and fashion them into the sanctuary that God wanted them to build. So there were offerings of materials, there were also offerings of people and their service. Exodus 36, let's continue a little further with the story, verses 1 to 7. So Bezalel, Oholiab, and every skilled person to whom the Lord has given skill and ability, notice that, their skills were gifts also from God. God gave them these amazing skills and abilities, and now he waits to see who will come willingly and offer them to the Lord for his service. You know, you look at the human race, look at humanity, it's amazing the gifts God has given to people. I'm not talking about Christians only. I'm talking about heathen, atheists, agnostics, unsaved people, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus. He's given them all tremendous skills and abilities. Sadly, the majority of people are not dedicating those skills to God. They're using them to make money, to make idols of themselves, and eventually it causes their own destruction. You and I need to pay close attention to this. You should take an inventory if you haven't already done so. What are my skills? What are my abilities? What is it that God has given to me that is a skill or an ability? And then you have to ask a more serious question. Have I devoted it to God? for the building of his kingdom. Bezalel, Oholiab, and every skilled person to whom the Lord has given skill and ability to know how to carry out all the work of constructing the sanctuary are to do the work just as the Lord has commanded. So God gives them all the materials, God gives them all the skill and wisdom and ability to build 
this amazing sanctuary called the Tabernacle of Moses. And we saw in the opening verse, and we're not going to study this because we're not really looking too deeply into the tabernacle, but God gave Moses the whole pattern for this thing. He revealed to him the dimensions, the materials, every detail of how this sanctuary was to be built. So under Moses' direction, all of these skilled craftsmen and workers would take the materials and build this exactly according to the specifications that God had given to Moses. Listen to this again. Bezalel of Eliab and every skilled person uh, to whom the Lord has given skill and ability to know how to carry out all the work of constructing the sanctuary, they are to do the work, just as the Lord has commanded. Then Moses summoned Bezalel and Oholiab, and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given ability, and here it comes again, and who was willing to come and do the work. Not only did they have ability, they had willingness. God loves free will offerings. God loves people who realize, God has given me a gift. Maybe I can sing. Maybe I can preach. Maybe I can usher. Maybe I can drive a vehicle. Maybe I can paint or clean carpets. Maybe I can serve food. Whatever the gift is, you come willingly and say, Here I am, Lord. I've come to do the work. Notice that. Every skilled person to whom the Lord had given ability and who was willing to come and do the work. They received from Moses all the offerings, the silver, the gold, the linen, all those materials. They received all the offerings the Israelites had brought to carry out the work of constructing the sanctuary. And the people continued to bring free will offerings morning after morning. So all the skilled workers who were doing all the work on the sanctuary left what they were doing and said to Moses, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord commanded to be done. I don't hear too many pastors with that complaint nowadays. I hear just the opposite. People are stingy. People are staying at home. They're not offering their time. They're not offering their money. They're not giving to the Lord. But notice what's happening here. These people are so willing, they keep coming, they keep giving, and finally the workers have to go to Moses and say, we got a problem boss, the people are bringing too much stuff. They're bringing more than enough. Then Moses has to give an order. Moses gave an order, and they sent this word throughout the camp. Stop giving! No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. We've got enough! And so the people were restrained from bringing more. Because what they already had was more than enough to do all the work. Wow! God really touched the hearts of these ex-slaves. They were really in first love. They wanted to do something for the Lord. And when they heard this call to bring items bring themselves, bring their services, they went the second, third, and fiftieth mile. They went way beyond the call of duty, and they actually had to be restrained from bringing any more. Once all of the work was completed, 
remember this starts in Exodus 25, it's only when you get to Exodus 40 that the tabernacle is finally completed. And all this work obviously took time. A great deal of skilled, detailed work, uh, metallurgy, engraving, uh, sewing, all kinds of stuff had to be done. Finally, in Exodus 40, verse 33 to verse 38, we'll read, Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Then, and this is the part I want to talk about, then, underline that word then, after the work was finished, and only after all the work was finished, they followed every detail from Moses' revelation, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. So, there's something else going on here now. Not only does God come down on Mount Sinai and speak to the people and tell them, all right, build me a tabernacle, build me a sanctuary. Once that sanctuary is completed, God fills that place with his glory and his presence, and from that day on, there is a visible manifestation of God's presence and glory right over top of that tabernacle. It looks like a cloud during the daytime, and it looks like a pillar of fire during the night. And it says, I'm reading again, in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. So this was to be a visible manifestation of God's glory, his presence with them, and constantly reassuring them, I'm leading you, I'm guiding you, I am with you. Let me read another passage about this cloud that covered the tabernacle from that day onwards. Numbers chapter 9, verses 15 to 23. On the day of the tabernacle, the tent of the covenant law was set up. The cloud covered it. From evening till morning, the cloud above the tabernacle looked like fire. That is how it continued to be. The cloud covered it, and at night it looked like fire. Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites set out. Whenever the cloud settled, the Israelites encamped. You see, this sanctuary was really a gigantic tent. It was portable. They could set it up, take it down. And when this cloud began to lift off of the tent, that was the signal, time for us to break camp, time for us to tear down the tent, pack it up, and get ready to move. Whenever the cloud lifted, the Israelites set out. Whenever the cloud settled, then they had to set up the whole tabernacle again and encamp there. Here's the interesting thing. Verse 18 tells us, At the Lord's command, the Israelites set out, 
and at his command they encamped. Not at Moses' command. Moses was not their commander. The Lord was. And through this cloud, this visible manifestation, God was leading them and telling them when to move and when to stay put. At the Lord's command, the Israelites set out, and at his command, they encamped. As long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. When the cloud remained over the tabernacle a long time, and it did at Mount Sinai, the Israelites obeyed the Lord's order and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was over the tabernacle only a few days, and at the Lord's command, they would encamp, and then at, the, at his command, they would set out. Sometimes the cloud stayed only from evening till morning, and when it lifted in the morning, they set out. Whether by day or by night, whenever the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether the cloud stayed over the tabernacle for two days, or a month, or a year, the Israelites would remain in camp and not set out. But when it lifted, they would set out. At the Lord's command they encamped, and at the Lord's command they set out. They obeyed the Lord's order in accordance with his command through Moses. Now, let's talk about the New Testament counterpart to all this. This is what happened at Mount Sinai. What is this representing for you and for me as Christians? A few of these verses we've already read, but we need to look at them again in this context. Listen to me very carefully here. It's only through the baptism in the Holy Spirit that the individual believer truly becomes the temple of God. And let me insert here again, being born again is not the same thing as being baptized in water. Being baptized in water is not the same thing as being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Read the book of Acts. There are three separate and distinct experiences. I feel sorry for Christians who have been told, the minute you ask Jesus into your heart, you got the whole package. You don't need to do anything else. That is not what the book of Acts says. Repent, be baptized, and then you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And if you read chapter after chapter in the book of Acts, you'll see clear examples where those are three separate and distinct experiences. In Acts 8, for instance, the Samaritans, they heard the gospel through Philip's preaching. They had demons cast out of them. Many of them got saved, and then they were baptized in water. So they're saved, they're baptized in water. Many preachers would tell them, you got it all, man, that's it. No. Acts 8 says, they called Jerusalem, not by telephone, I don't think they had cell phones then, but they put in a call to Jerusalem, we need the apostles, Peter and John, to come down here to Samaria to pray for these folks because they've been saved, they've been baptized in water, but they've not yet received the Holy Spirit. When Peter and John came down, they laid hands on these baptized believers, and then they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Very clear. Read Acts 8. It's all there. So, baptism in the Holy Spirit is the way that the individual believer becomes the temple of God. And something else happens. He is mysteriously joined together corporately with all other spirit-baptized believers to become one body, or more specifically, and we'll see this in these verses, to become 
the habitation of God. It's called the church, it's called the house of God, it's called the temple of God. Both individually and corporately, we become the temple, the habitation, the dwelling place of God when God fills us with the Holy Spirit. All right, let's look at some scriptures. First, let, let's look at this on the individual level. Each believer individually becomes a little temple for God through the baptism in the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17. Don't you know? Well, that's a good question. Don't you know this? It's important to know this. That's why Paul starts this way. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, he's talking about our body, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. So, he's actually talking about both things here. The individual believer being the temple where God's Spirit dwells, and corporately, all of us together. He says, God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Look in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. Starts with the same question. Do you not know, don't you know, that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? That's how you became a temple, when the Holy Spirit took up residence in you through the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Whom you have received from God. You are not your own, you were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, while Jesus was still here on earth with the disciples, uh, especially in the Gospel of John 14, 15, and 16, you find numerous passages in those three chapters where Paul, where Jesus, sorry, refers to the coming counselor, the Holy Spirit. I want to look at one of them in John 14 and notice some important things that Jesus predicted and promised would be happening once he went back to the Father and he sent the Holy Spirit. John 14 from verse 15 to 20. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, or your Bible may say comforter, counselor. It's actually parakletos, the paraclete, the one called alongside to help you. He will give you another advocate to help you and, note these words, to be with you forever. This is something that's never happened before. This is a brand new experience about to take place on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit of God is going to come not only to help you, Holy Spirit did that many times in the Old Testament, but he's going to be with you forever. Not just with you. Follow on with me here. Verse 17, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him. Unsaved people can't even begin to understand this experience, let alone receive the Holy Spirit. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he lives with you and will be in you. 
let's take this very slowly. And if you're fairly good at English grammar, you'll understand something is happening here. Jesus tells the disciples, you know the Holy Spirit. You've heard me talking about him a lot. And these these disciples were saved. Jesus already encouraged them. Your names are written in heaven. These are saved followers of Christ. You know him, and right now he lives with you. But soon, I must go back to the Father, soon he will be in you. That never happened. What Jesus is describing here has never happened before. And in John 7, that famous passage where Jesus says, If any man's thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. But this he was speaking about the Holy Spirit, who had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So, the experience of baptism in the Holy Spirit, what happened on the day of Pentecost, is a future event when Jesus is talking here to the disciples. He will be, that's future, He will be in you. He's with you right now, but He's coming in a different dimension. On the day of Pentecost, He's going to take up residence in you. He's going to make you His temple. He will be in you. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, now, he's talking about this day in the near future, when he will be in you. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. It's a little complicated, but if you study it, I think you'll understand what he's saying. There's something yet to come here, called the baptism in the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit will be living in you forever. Then you're going to realize some things. I am in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. Now, we're running out of time here, and we haven't even begun to look in detail at what happens to all of us corporately. Every believer who has been baptized in the Holy Spirit, I mentioned, they are united together and they become one holy temple. Let me just whet your appetite a little bit and we're going to come back and look at this in more detail next time. But on the day of Pentecost, most Bible teachers and preachers agree that's when the church was born. That's when this tabernacle began to be constructed, the holy dwelling place for God. Let me just read to you from Ephesians 2, and I think it's crystal clear from this one passage, and we'll build on this next time. Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 22. Paul says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Now follow these next two verses. In him, in Christ, the whole building, he's talking about a building, the household the building has a chief cornerstone, which is Jesus. In him, 
the whole building is joined together and rises to become, here it is, a holy temple in the Lord. Well, what are we building this thing out of? Cement blocks or bricks or fancy stones? What, what kind of a building are we talking about? In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. <clears throat> and in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. So, these are living stones, Peter says, being built together mysteriously, supernaturally, by the Holy Spirit to become a dwelling. Please note that carefully. There's only one dwelling. Not 20, not 50. One dwelling built together by the Spirit of God, where God can take up residence, where God can dwell. It's called the church. It's called the body of Christ. It's called the bride of Christ. These are all terms that are used interchangeably in the New Testament. But specifically, we're looking now at a holy temple. He doesn't just call it a temple to become a holy temple in the Lord, a holy temple where God can dwell. That's what happened at Mount Sinai, and that's what happens through the baptism in the Holy Spirit. We'll pick it up here next time and talk much more about this corporate body or dwelling place that is being built. God uses I'm sorry, Paul uses that word, built together. We're becoming a building. We're being constructed. Just as they constructed the tabernacle, this building is being constructed. And it's coming together as one holy dwelling place for God. And, here's the part I really like, just as that cloud was on that tent day and night. So God wants the cloud of His glory, a visible manifestation, to be upon each one of us individually, but more specifically, upon this holy temple, the church, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, that is being built together by His Spirit. No wonder the Holy Spirit is so important. This is a great work which He is doing. Not only filling us, giving us gifts, enabling us to do certain things, but building us together to become an eternal habitation for God. These are amazing things that cannot be understood by the carnal mind. We need the Holy Spirit even to begin to understand the things that we're talking about here tonight. Let us close in prayer, and we'll continue this more next time. Father, I thank you for the Holy Spirit. I thank you that the Holy Spirit is a promise, and he's a gift. And Lord, all who call on your name, all who have been saved, you've promised them this gift. This is the promise of the Father, to be baptized, immersed into the Spirit of God, and for the Spirit of God to come and make us the temple of God. Oh, Father, what an amazing thing. What marvelous good news this is. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. God, I pray for every listener on the phone or on the Internet or those who will hear this message in the future through recordings. Baptize each and every one afresh and anew 
with the Holy Spirit. And let us know and understand what you have done. You have made us your temple, your dwelling place. And you're uniting all of us together. Every believer on the face of this planet, you're uniting us together as one holy bride, one holy temple, a place where you can dwell. God, give us greater understanding, greater insight, greater revelation by your Holy Spirit into these things, O God. And we will praise you and bless your holy name forever and ever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.